Okay. I just want to let you guys know that one of the things that I care about most is just feedback, all right? And so you can't be dead in this joint, all right? Yeah? Okay, good. I want to make sure we got that off the bat. So yeah, like Grant said, welcome. My name is Tori. Uh, I am uh, originally from Detroit, Michigan, uh, home of cars and murder. I guess that's about it, all right. But I am in Austin, Texas now, praise the Lord, home of music and hipsters and coffee shops and hipster coffee shops, and that's pretty much what Austin looks like. So uh, yeah, good to be back in Ohio. It's a little bit chilly for me right now. Uh, my hands are freezing, so I'm used to that Texas weather already, but uh, yeah, good to be here. So I've been pastoring a church uh, there in Austin for uh, about five years now. We launched a church plant right next to UT. Does somebody say hook em when they said Austin? Wow, what is going on? Man, this is interesting. All right. So, uh, yeah, my wife is a UT grad. So, uh, I guess one flesh, I'm a UT grad as well, some ways. All right. So, uh, down in Austin. But uh, the thing that's most important about me is that I am married to my beautiful bride, Natalie. Uh, we have three little girls. Uh, I think we actually have a picture, maybe, maybe not. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that is uh, super, super awesome. There we go. Look at that. That's pretty much always their personalities, too. Like, Kyria, my aunt, the middle, always looks like that. So, yeah, that's where they are, all right? Guys, it's okay to say all, all right? You're not going to lose your man card. All the ladies are like, aww. And guys are like, that's cool. All right, but I actually have the same shirt on. That's embarrassing, all right? Well, here we go. I have multiple shirts, but this is definitely a pastor shirt. So, there we go. Uh, so, yeah, so met my wife, Natalie, uh, out at an LT. So, uh, ladies, guys, if you were trying to find you a husband or a wife, LT, go get you one, all right? They're out there, and we connected, and yeah, that's what's happening. So, uh, anyway, today, tomorrow, as Grant said, we're talking about something that I think is super, super important. And then I think that most of us, we may have a, a light grasp on kind of what's happening in the scriptures, but I don't think we actually have taken the time to dive into the intricacies of really what Peter and the scriptures as a whole lay out for us and uh, really what he lays out there in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. So uh, we're going to cover that time every, we get, every time we get together, we'll cover that verse. And so if nothing else, before the end of fall getaway, you should have that verse memorized, all right? So you can walk away having something. So Grant just read it, but I want to read it again. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 9, Peter talking to a dispersed people, the people that are really in some ways losing a lot of their identity and they're confused about who they are. Peter launches in with this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Amen. Let's go home right? Like that verse is good, isn't it? Like this is a, a weighty verse in a lot of ways. And Peter is packing a lot of things into just this one little section. And so uh, there are three things, as Grant said, that we'll be covering within this. But the first one tonight that I want us to begin to think about is, man, where is our identity? Right? Like, like, like who are we in a lot of ways? What is, what is God calling us to be? Where is he trying to lead us in the kingdom? Or really in some ways, what makes us who we are? 
Because a lot of us, I think we would place our identity, who we are, onto things that actually don't really give us intricate value. And so we long for something more. And Peter is trying to help us see the beauties of who Christ is. But I think we miss it a lot of times. And so where is our identity? How do we even find that? Peter is trying to to slam home an idea for us. And so first of all, I think to understand the verse, we have to break down a lot of the metaphors that Peter is using, right? In fact, he says four distinct things to his audience at the time. At first, he calls them a chosen race, all right? Now, this is super, super important context because without it, this sounds like some Nazi stuff, right? Like you, the Aryan race, or the chosen race. Like, that's at least what I think of. I don't know about y'all. That, I thought you would laugh at that. That was not apparently a funny joke. There we go. Thanks, all right? So uh, the you, okay, in that verse is important for us to get. You is emphatic in the Greek, and this is written originally in the Greek, and what emphatic means is just simply Peter is trying to yell this out. Like, if we were typing this up today, we would probably bold the you or underline or all caps or something, and so Peter is saying, hey, you, you friends that are reading this, I want you to recognize that you are indeed a chosen race. Now, why the emphasis on this because this is genuinely a profound truth and a truth that I don't think we're able to really comprehend unless we see the scriptures as a whole and what God is doing throughout. In the Old Testament, God actually chose a race or a group of people that were uh, special to him in particular, and they were the Jews. Now, they weren't special because they were superior in any way. In fact, in Numbers and in Deuteronomy and all throughout the prophets, God actually reminds Israel that he chose them because of how unspecial they were. Like, like they weren't that great. They weren't that awesome and they weren't that large. In fact, they were the smallest of the clans and this is why God chose them. Thanks, God, right? Adrenaline boost there, it feels like, right? Like that'd be playing like a pickup basketball with LeBron James. And then, you know, there's a couple captains, LeBron's one of them and he's like, I got you first. And you're like, yeah. And as you're walking over, you kind of feel a sense of pride. Like, look at me, make sure everybody sees you. And then let's pretend you walk in and he says, man, actually, actually I picked you because like I'm the best player in the world and I knew I wouldn't really need you. In fact, your ineptitude makes me look better than I am. So thanks. Like, would you still be feeling like, come on, everybody, look at me, right? Like, no, okay? And so this is in some ways what God is saying, but before we think that that's a negative thing in and of itself, I want to reframe our minds a little bit because if he told them, I chose you because of how awesome you are, then literally their whole lives, they would have to bear the burden of awesomeness. And whenever they screwed up, then they would all of a sudden get crushed by that burden and they would make God look bad. And so in reality, he actually chooses them, not because of how great they are, but rather because of how ungreat they are. And he wants to take them and make them great. God is doing something special here, and he wants them to recognize where they were before they came to know who he was. And if this is true of us too, friends, then I want us to think about the implications of that. Paul in Corinthians reminds his readers that not many of you were noble before the Lord called you. In fact, in a lot of us, we were the scum of the earth, the scripture says. And yet God still, for whatever reason, in his miraculous mercies, comes down, picks up a people that do not belong to him, that really have no value intrinsically in the kingdom, and he begins to recreate value and restore and redeem, and this is our God. 
a God that takes a nobody like me and begins to build back up the intricacies, the beauty of who we were created to be, this is what God has done throughout human history. And so when God says you are a chosen race, this is an extremely important thing. The other thing is that, man, if you got picked up on LeBron James's team, you may not be that great, but at least you'd always win, unless you're playing Steph Curry with the shot, right? Like you would always, oh yeah, I'm in Ohio, dang. All right, so anyway, right? You would always win, you would feel like, and so in reality, you kind of riding his coattails would intrinsically give you a sense of awesomeness too. Like you get a ring even if you're the 12th player on the bench, right? And so God then in some ways is, is building this. And so God chose Israel out of compassion to help the nation see that he was indeed the true God, that this king was a benevolent king, a merciful king, a gracious king. He wanted them to see how, how, how much majesty would be had when you come into his presence, and he wanted to use Israel as that demonstration. And as the nation saw this, as they were drawn to God, they received the joy, immeasurable joy that you cannot even begin to comprehend, and God is working redemption through Israel. And if this is true of us, which is what Peter is saying, then some of the same principles are true, that he wants to show you his benevolence, show you his mercy, show you his grace, that you would, through the power of Christ, begin to display that beauty, that love, that grace, that mercy that you feel from the Lord to others around you. More on that in later sessions. But this is a good thing because now what this means is that we don't have to fake and act like something that we're not, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but often when I'm in church, I mean, I, I fake it. I mean, even Grant said, I'm the guy that's raising his hands, right? And I mean, straight up, sometimes I'm worshiping the Lord and sometimes I'm like, I'm in the front row and if people see me just kind of downcast that day, then what are they gonna think? And all of a sudden, I have to start putting on some sort of facade, trying to gain something, right? But, but if God didn't choose you because of how awesome you were, but rather just out of his grace, what is there to fake? What is there to, to, to try to manipulate? God chose you out of his grace and benevolence, and he's the one that's awesome. Friends, we can shift that burden off of us and allow it to land on the Lord where it belongs, and we can walk in freedom now without the weight of having to be our own savior. This is the beauty of God when he calls you into himself. And so God was a, a chosen nation out of Israel, and now the you is emphatic because Peter's saying what was true of them is now true of you as well. He then goes on and calls them a nation of priests, a, a holy priesthood. A priest was the go-between between between God and man. Because of our sin, nobody could approach God directly. And so the priest was the go-between. When you had a prayer request, you couldn't just bow on your knees and go to the Lord, but rather you went to the priest and offered this sacrifice, and that made you clean, and then you could connect. And so the priest was our go-between that God in the heavens who is very different than us because of our sin would kind of come down to earth in some ways through the median of a priest. And Israel was that nation of priests. They would offer sacrifice for our sins that would atone us or cleanse us. And now all of a sudden we're saying, no, 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 wait a minute. All of you are priests. This is a profound truth as well. You are a holy nation, the third one says. That means you are set apart. You are different than those around you. And so they're different for reasons that we've already seen, that God is doing something special that cannot be measured. This is a profound thing. And finally, they were a people for God's own possession. 
They were his reward, his cherished ones, his beloved ones, the one that God chose for himself. This was Israel. Now pause for a second because if all of this is true and if you know the Old Testament, you know how God interacts with his nation, you know how God uses his nation. If, if this is true of them and Peter is saying, hey, now you friends, you who are in Christ, if you believe in Jesus, then this is who you become, then all of a sudden those promises, that belovedness that we see from the Father, the, the covenant love of God that David or Abraham or Moses or whoever it may be shared, we now have that that much more. Because see, David wasn't a priest, he was just a king right? Moses was not a priest. He's the one that helped establish the nation. But all of a sudden, we get called all of the different things that made Israel special, but they're all of a sudden in every single believer. This is an insane truth. And God is trying to drive home something that would really shape our lives if we actually believe this truth. Because it sounds good, and we nod our heads at that, but, but the distance between the head belief and the heart belief is the furthest distance in mankind. To get something that kind of conceptually makes sense and to actually believe it, like, like that's difficult. That's all but impossible to do. But this is what Peter is trying to have them do. And so he's telling his readers everything that made Israel great, this is now yours. Kenneth Wurst, who's a Greek uh, commentator, he says this. He says, each saint is God's unique possession, just as if that saint were the only human being in existence. Think about that, that if you are in Christ, then you are God's possession, right? You, Sarah, as if you're the only person that exists. You, Grant, you, Kenneth, you, whoever, as if you're the only person that exists. This is what God chooses because this is his divine, effectual love for you. This is unbelievable because if we remember that we don't really have a lot of awesomeness in and of ourselves, yet for whatever reason God chooses us as his own possession, all of a sudden we realize, man, that this is grace unfathomable. This is love that we are unable to actually truly comprehend and Peter is trying to drive home this truth. This is an extraordinary thing. And all throughout the Bible, this verse included, there are promises that scream out at us about how much God loves us. They, they beckon us into this love. They, they try to draw us. God over and over again is revealing how much he loves us. And verses like these are, are nothing more than reminders of that. Now, before you think that I'm getting kind of Oprah self-help on you here, right? Like, like there's a weightiness to this as well, because all of us in here, I would argue, don't believe this truth. All of us in here, we, we wrestle with identity in some way, shape, or form, or we wrestle with meaning, or we wrestle with purpose, or we wrestle with feeling worth, or we're feeling value, and we usually take two sides of the same coin. For some of us, we feel weighty, discouraged, downcast, even depressed, because we don't feel like we have this sort of value. We maybe know that there wasn't a whole lot of awesomeness in us, and we think that we're still in that state, that even though Christ has come and redeemed us, we kind of feel very unworthy, and so we'll sin at one point on Wednesday, and we won't recover for that for two months, because we'll feel like that totally blocks me off from the love of God. 
And so we feel unworthy. We don't believe these verses because we don't feel like we're good enough because we feel like we have to work for our salvation is what that is. And all of a sudden we feel this weight. Others of us, same side of the coin, just different, right? Is we, we work a lot and we kind of think that we're actually pretty awesome. And so we'll strive and we'll try to earn and we'll try to seek to show that we are as awesome as hopefully people think that we are. And so maybe we'll try to get good grades because that will make people think that I'm smart because that's where my identity lies. We will lie to ourselves and say, maybe I'll read my Bible and maybe I'll even raise my hands in, 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 in worship so that people will look at me and think that I'm spiritual because that's where my identity is. I'm a spiritual person. I need these people to believe that and we'll work and we'll strive and we'll do whatever it takes that people would think much of us. We are still working for our identity when Christ says it is ours in the blood of the Son, that this is where we find our true value but we feel depressed because we don't feel like we measure up or we work and strive trying to prove our worth and, and neither of these are good options. All of us, we, we have this desire that, that we would actually live and, and interact in our true identities. All of us has something deep inside of us screaming out at us that you are lovely, you are beautiful, you have worth. You are strong. You are courageous. There is something inside of you that's saying there's something more than what you're living for right now. And we feel it literally feeding into us because all of us are searching for that true identity, that true value that is found only in Christ. And the scriptures tell us if you are in Christ, you are God's very own possession. But we don't feel that way. And here's why we don't feel that way. Let's go all the way back to the start. Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, obviously God is creating the world and there are six days where he makes all of these things and on the sixth day he comes down and he makes humanity and there's something different about humanity. In fact, if you want to have a good quiet time tomorrow and just read some of the stuff that he says and in chapter 2, see everything else God speaks into existence. Man, praise the Lord for his omnipotent power, right? But not humanity. Humanity, it says he gets down onto the earth and he picks up the dust and he begins to form it with his hands and he breathes into humans the breath of life through their nostrils. God humbling himself under us to breathe up into us the breath of life. God is intimate with humanity. There is this richness, there is this deepness that we don't see throughout the rest of creation. When I was in Colorado, I was uh, uh, LT, I was out once and at this beautiful scenery. It's like a mountain and there's like a huge lake there and the sun was out, but there were clouds. It was 72 degrees. I'm not joking. There were like deer frolicking over by the river. There was like birds flying. It was like all of God's creation. And I said, kind of in my heart to God, man, thank you that your fingerprints are on all that you have made. Because I was seeing God and I felt like he spoke very clearly to me and said, my fingerprints are only on one thing, you. You're the only thing that I touched. You're the only thing that I formed. You're the only thing that I was that intimate with. See, this is how God started. That's why there's something different about humanity, something that we feel within us. And it started here, Genesis 1.21. says, so God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are made in the image of God. Theologians call this the imago Dei. We are made to reflect or to image or to look like God. In the same way that a son or a daughter, they reflect, they image, they look like their mommies and daddies. That's why my daughters are so attractive and beautiful because they are imaging their daddy. I mean, their mommy, right? Just kidding. But likewise, we are in God's image. I, I mean, think about what I just said. My daughters look like, act like, think like me and my wife. Why? Because they are in the image and likeness of us. And scripture says that we are in the image and likeness of God. And because of this, there is intrinsic value, worth, beauty, identity, purpose, meaning that wraps up inside of us because if God is truly the all-worthy one, if he is the all-beautiful one, if he is the all-lovely one, then he made you like him. That means that there's something inside of us that's screaming out to regain that Imago Dei. This is where we have been created for. However, we know that the text doesn't end in Genesis chapter one. Just two chapters later in Genesis chapter three, we see the fall of man. And if you turn there, beginning in verse seven, after Adam and Eve ate the apple, we see this, or the fruit, whatever it was. I always think it's an apple because apple products have the bitten fruit off of it, right? But it says this, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? All of a sudden, every single thing that God created gets marred. Man tries to cover themselves up because they realize that they are naked and they had this idea to do it with fig leaves, which isn't even that bright of an idea. So apparently we lost some wisdom at the fall as well, right? Like we're just searching for, for silly things that are going on. We, we all of a sudden are trying to hide from God and rather than allowing God to speak value into them, rather than allowing God to restore and redeem them, to try to draw them back, all of a sudden man is doing the exact opposite of what he's supposed to do, rather than running toward God, we run away from God, and then God calls out for them and, and asks them a question, where are you? Which, by the way, whenever God asks you a question, he's not actually asking you a question, right? You tracking with that? Like, like, look at the text there. It says that he walked over to where the man was hiding and said, Adam, where are you? <laughs> right? Like, like God knows where he is. This is an interesting just even idea that, that man is trying to hide from God because God is feeling, or he is feeling ashamed as if he can hide from God in the first place. I mean, he knows enough about God to know that he's omniscient. Like he was there as God was forming him, yet he feels something inside of him that's telling him, you are not worthy anymore. You are not valuable. You are not as beautiful as you were made to be. You must hide yourself. And God comes down and tries to restore, right? Remember I said a second ago, we, we don't have a strong sense of identity because we either feel ashamed and, and depressed and we try to hide our nakedness. 
And that's what Adam and Eve are doing here. Or we try to make up our own righteousness. We try to make up Woo, yeah, there we go, right? We try to make up our own identity. We try to create fig leaves and cover ourselves up and show that, wait a minute, no, 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 as long as you don't look at these a couple areas, we are actually valuable. We are actually something to be, to be beloved, to be, to be smitten by. Like, like we are that and we either try to hide or we try to build up and a lot of us do both at the same time. And this is the problem ever since Genesis chapter three. And I love the question that God asked them. Who, who told you that you were naked? Right? Like, like it's easy to read over that question, but, but like, think about that question for a second. Like, who told you that you are not worthy? Who told you that the way that God made you was not exactly what he wanted to do? Did you tell yourself that? Did society tell yourself that? Did, 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 did your, your mom or your dad or, or somebody else, like, like who told you that you are unloved and not even lovable? Who told you that you have to work to achieve your righteousness, that as long as you are good enough, then finally people may accept you? Who told you that you were naked? God knew what he was doing, yet all of a sudden we, we feel this shame. We try to build up our own righteousness. And so from Genesis chapter 3 onward, we see this spiral of mankind slowly but surely falling from grace of where they were. Man has been trying to reclaim the Imago Dei, the, the image of God inside of us. We've been trying to, to get that back ever since. And we try to work and strive and we do what it takes that we might feel that. We know deep down inside of us there's something screaming out at us that there's something more. But we can't figure it out. And so we go through all these different things to try to prove our worth and our value. I mean, just in almost any story you can see this, but fast forward to Genesis chapter 11. Here, they're all of a sudden doing the Tower of Babel, if you're familiar with that story at all. And they're trying to build a tower that will go up into the heavens and in verse 3, it says this, And they, the people, said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Do you hear identity in that? Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be forgotten, lest we be despised, lest nobody really know who we are, lest we don't have that value, that, that worth, that, that, that purpose that we feel inside of us. Like, we have to do a great thing so that other people will think that we're great. Let's do this together, is what man says here. And do you see, like, can you, can you relate with this? I love the response from God and in those verses, the next verse, God comes down, and the irony of it is that the all-seeing God can't even really see their tower. He says, come, let us go down and see what they are doing. Now, obviously, we know that God can physically see, but it was so insignificant compared to the image that he created within them that though they thought they were doing something awesome, God couldn't even see it. And a lot of us, we work and we strive and we maybe even finally get what we feel like we're supposed to be doing and then we don't feel like it's enough. It's as if God doesn't even see it. 
It's as if there was something so much more that we were made for. There was so much more worth and we are selling ourselves short by taking a hold of these lesser things. They are not even close to the Imago Dei. They're not even close to the image of God as they are building themselves and striving, trying to find value or purpose or reason or calling. And so maybe if I build a big enough tower, like that will finally satisfy right? Or, or maybe if I, I get good enough grades, or, or maybe if I just get this boy to like me, th- then that will give me value, right? Like, like maybe if I get this job, or maybe if I can finally to tell, have my dad tell me that he is proud of me, maybe then, maybe then I'll have this identity that's screaming out inside of me, And all of us, whether we feel depressed by the weight of it or whether we feel like we need to work for the weight of it, all of us are seeking and we're striving, we're trying to make something of ourselves because we're trying to reclaim the image of God within us. Friends, this is the rest of the story of the Bible, of people trying to find a sense of purpose or or identity or calling. And in every single one of our lives, if we actually listen and we take enough time we'll realize that that's what's screaming out at us. And it can even take many spiritual forms. So for me personally, I told you that we planted a church in Austin, Texas. Austin is not like the rest of Texas, and so all of Texas is a red state, but Austin's this little blue dot in the middle. All of Texas is, is very Bible-heavy and church-heavy, but Austin hates Jesus, and so there's less than 2% of the people in my particular area that actually attend church at least once a month, and so that means pretty much nobody. Right? So we went right into that area on purpose, said, hey, let's plant a church here because the gospel's not here, right? and let's go. So we had 11 people when we first began, and we're kind of gathering, and then after a while, we launched a, a public service. And what they tell you in church planning stuff is that week one, everybody and their mom comes out to see you, right? Like everybody wants to see like, oh, my boy's planting a church, yay, right? So your mom comes, their mom comes, and they come try to see you. The second week, it doesn't really matter as much, but the third week, every church plant statistician, yes, those people exist, all right? The third week, They say, hey, that's like your pinnacle week. And that's when people decide if they're going to stay with you or if they're going to go somewhere else. And so the third week, we had 63 people. And I walked in, I was like, yo, right? Like I was stoked. And I already prepped my best sermon, you know, so I had all my funny points and and all the good exegesis of scripture. And I was like, these people are staying in this church, yo. Like we're about to make a difference, right? So song one comes on, we're playing, and the girl that we had planted with us, she ended up making it like really big on American Idol, and she was like awesome. So she's like singing this beautiful melody, and I'm like, these people are staying, man. Like, I'm, I'm stoked, you know? So we go up, and all of a sudden, this crackhead comes walking in, all right? Now, I told you I'm from Detroit. I know what a crackhead is, all right? But a lot of the people were in Austin, and they had never really seen that before, so they didn't really know what was happening. And so she walks down to the front and there was just a little tiny stage, like probably, you know, an eighth of this height. And she just like walks up on stage, looks around, grabs something, and then like leaves. So I thought, man, maybe she like dropped her ring and it like somehow rolled and then like bounced up that step and made it on stage or something, I don't know, right? 
So then I get into the sermon and, you know, I'm, I'm preaching. And now, mind you, I grew up in black church, all right? And so black church, you get amens and hallelujahs and preach it, right? So she starts doing that. And I'm used to that. So I'm like, that's fine. If you want to take the sermon from 35 minutes to 55 minutes, you could do that, right? Just keep encouraging me. But I'm hearing her, yes, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, 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 yes. Amen. Amen. Yes, Lord, yes. And then like a minute in, I asked like a hypothetical question that was clearly a no, like, like, do you want to go to hell or something? She was like, yes, Lord, yes, yes. And I was like, oh, Lord, here we go, All right? And so I'm kind of watching, and I'm looking at a couple of people who are some leaders, like, you going to do something about this? And I'm trying not to break the sermon, and my mind's all off, you know. After like two minutes of this, she gets up and she goes in the back. And the bathrooms will be like back there. So I can see her go back there. Nobody else can see her. She goes to the bathroom and I'm just like starting to preach. And I'm like, all right, we're back into it. And then like 10 minutes go by and I'm like, I mean, this woman's still in the bathroom. So is she like using or does she like OD? Is she like passed out in the bathroom? So now all these things are flooding through my mind. Like, are we liable for that? Like, is she about to shut our church down because she's using it in our bathroom right now, right? And so I'm thinking about saying something, and she comes out, and then she's loud again, and finally one of our elders, he takes her outside, and I'm like, okay. So I actually said, hey, everybody, zone back in, all right? Let's get back into this. Yeah, yeah, okay. Start preaching, the elder comes back in, she comes back in, he, he pats the seat next to him, come sit by me. So she sits by him. She's being really loud again. So he starts kind of leading her, taking her outside. And as he takes her outside and as the door is closing, you hear as loud as possible. I was the furthest from the door and I heard it like it was right next to me. Get your mother hands off of me. You, right, cusses him out. And I'm like, gosh, dang it. And so then he's outside and I'm like, hey, listen, y'all, like Chuck's gonna take care of her. All right, don't, don't worry about this. Like, let's get back in the word. And then he comes back in and he locks the door. And I thought, that's smart because we're like 45 minutes in. Ain't nobody come that's not already here, you know. And then all of a sudden our door was metal and we hear this like, bam, bam, bam on the door. She got a hammer and started beating the door. I mean, I got scared, right? Like, like I'm from the hood, y'all. And I thought, I'm about to get shot up in this joint tonight, right? So I'm scared. Everybody's scared. Austin ain't a very hood city. So everybody's like, what do we do, right? And then all of a sudden we get into worship and I'm already feeling just depressed and worship is going and literally it was like the worst thing that could possibly happen because the, the guitars hit the last kind of strum and the sound went dead and all of a sudden our sound guy, he like hops up and starts like jumping over chairs. They're actually the exact same chairs that are in here. So he's like literally physically jumping over the chairs. He like fell over the last row. He's running outside and as the door is closing, the song goes dead. There's no noise in the room and you hear him yelling out, she's in children's ministry. She's with the kids. All right, so all of a sudden moms get up and they're freaking out, right? And they're like running around, okay? And I went home and I thought, Lord, why the cuss word would you do this to me? All right? Like if you didn't want me to plant a church, Lord, then just, just tell me, right? Like I really think I would have been fine like asking Grant, hey, can I come raise support and work at Cincy, right? Like, like I would have been okay with that. So I'm like, like, God, what are you doing? And I went and I sat on my bed and my wife came in and looked at me and then just kind of nodded her head and left me alone for like two hours, right? 
And I'm just sitting there and I'm asking all these questions. And then all of a sudden, about two hours into me feeling sorry about myself, I heard the Lord say clearer than anything I've ever heard the Lord say to me, your worth is not found in how awesome your church is. Your value is not found in how great of a preacher you are. Your identity is not that of a church planter. Your purpose is not to sit here and build this huge church and to do something awesome. You are looking for your value, your worth, your identity, your reason to be in something that's not me. And that is an idol and it will destroy you. And I felt it and I literally, I got up off my bed and I was like, let's go. And I was high my wife came in. She was like, you all right? And I told her all this, like, man, God just, I feel like he showed me the answer. And for the first time as a Christian, I felt like I believed the gospel. See, I believed the gospel to save me from my sins. And I was a believer clearly, but, but I didn't realize how the gospel actually had implications for me as a believer. And all of a sudden I realized that because of the cross of Christ, friends, I'm sitting here trying to find my worth and how awesome of a preacher I am or how great of a church planter I am. And I am a child of the everlasting king of the universe. Like this is where our identity lies. Why am I looking for it in all these silly things? Even if it's good things like church planting and, and preaching, those are praise the Lord for that. But man, when I try to find my identity in that, what a worthless identity. But Jesus calls me son. Jesus calls me beloved. He calls me his bride that one day I will be wed to him. I am a brother with Christ. I am a friend of God. I am a child of the king. Friends, our identity is only found through the blood of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And if we miss that, then we will be depressed because our identities will crush us or we will feel like we have to work, build this tower to get up into heaven. And those things cannot satisfy that is not where our identity is found. Now let's go back to our Peter verse again and think about once again what Peter's saying here. In 2 Peter, I actually want to start a little bit earlier, starting in verse 4. He says, as you come to him, as you are a Christian, as you are a believer, all right, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 9 again. You are a chosen race, a priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Listen, friends, if you are a believer in Jesus, my gosh, look at this. This is who we are. All the yearning and, and turmoil and struggle that we feel within us, you are now precious to God. His chosen possession, his beloved what the heck else do you want? <laughs> like every single praise of all the mans that have ever existed will not even be measurable compared to God saying, I am pleased with you. And if we actually believe that, then it will literally revolutionize our lives because we won't have to feel the burden of trying to be significant because you are. 
You have been made by God. This is crazy. God loves you, right? And how do we know this is true, though? Because this is the important piece that I think is easy for us to miss out. All of this is true, but it's only true because of the beloved son. You see, Jesus was actually the all-precious one. Jesus was actually the, the chosen, the, the one of God's own possession, the, the royal priesthood, the, the kingly priest. Like, like that was Jesus right? Jesus is the one that possessed all identity, all value, all purpose, all significance, all worth, however much we can elevate Christ. Like, like this is who Jesus was. But the gospel tells us that God is so in love with you that Christ came down to become a man. And he actually stripped away all of that significance and beauty and worth and value and the most beautiful being to ever be in existence became a baby born where cows eat. And he grew up as a man who wasn't really looked upon, Isaiah tells us. There was no beauty to behold with him in and of himself. And he made himself into a man like us. In Philippians chapter 2, this lays it out in some of the most beautiful language to me. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being uh, found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Like, just take one of Peter's four analogies there. Let's just take priesthood, for example. See, Jesus was the actual ultimate priest because Jesus had direct connection between us and God because Jesus was on the throne with God himself as God himself. Jesus was the ultimate priest, but the gospel tells us that he loves you so much that he came down to be a man, and when Jesus is on the cross, he cries out to God, and throughout all of eternity past and into all of eternity future, whenever Jesus spoke, God listened. But not at that point. He cries out and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the scriptures say that God turned his face from his son. Why did this happen? So that you who have no business talking to God may now have access to him forever as very priest of God. Jesus lost his priesthood that you may become a priest. The gospel tells us that all of Jesus's worth was laid down that it may be built up in you. Like friends, this is an unbelievable truth. And as we root ourselves in the gospel and as we understand the beauties of Christ more and more, then the way that we try to seek and earn and yearn for significance, man, that all falls by the wayside. And whether y'all think, man, Tori's a great preacher, or you're like, this dude talks way too long, like, I don't care, <laughs> right? Like, man, I'm a child of the king, and obviously we want to do our best and, and work well as unto the Lord, but I mean, honestly, ultimately, like, it's the Lord who justifies, the scriptures say. And what if we carried that truth with us everywhere we go? I want to end by reading this quote by Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York. I have a total pastor crush on this man. Everything he writes, I'm like, that should probably be in the Bible, but next best thing, all right, the books. And he says this, the gospel shows us that our spiritual problem 
lies not only in failing to obey God, but also in relying on our obedience to make us fully acceptable to God, ourselves, and others. Every kind of character flaw comes from this natural impulse to be our own savior through our own performance and achievement. On the one hand, proud and disdainful personalities come from basing your identity on your performance and thinking you are succeeding. But on the other hand, discouraged and self-loathing personalities also come from basing your identity on your performance and thinking you are failing. The Apostle Paul sees all kinds of sins in himself and all kinds of accomplishments too, but he refuses to connect them with his identity. The Bible says that our real problem is that every one of us is building our identity on something besides Jesus. And here's the deal, friends. If we realize that we can be connected to the true source of beauty, to the true source of worth and power, then friends, we will have identities that are built to last forever. And if we realize that because of what Christ has done for us, that we are now a people of God's own possession, then you don't have to feel self-loathing, nor do you have to feel prideful and disdainful. You are the kings. You are God's. Let that actually bleed into your heart that it may direct the paths of your life forever. I'm really looking forward to the rest of our weekend. Let's pray.